Unlocking Consciousness. Exploring the mind through the prism of science, technology, meditation, and psychedelics. Welcome to Hacking Consciousness. I'm your host, Adrian Baker. Today, I'm very excited because we're going to be diving into a topic for the first time on this show in which I'm very interested, artificial intelligence. I first became interested in the topic about two years ago through listening to Sam Harris's podcast, and Sam is very interested in the issue, and he had a book on his reading list on his website by a man named James Barrett called Our Final Invention, Artificial Intelligence and the End of the Human Era. I picked it up and read right through it. It's a real page turner and absolutely loved it. And two years later, I now have James on my podcast and I'm extremely excited to welcome him because he is an extremely knowledgeable person who wrote a fantastic book and he's really a great spokesman on this topic. To give you a sense of James's background, James is a documentary filmmaker by training who has won several award-winning documentaries and has had those shows on channels such as National Geographic, Discovery, and PBS. With this book, Our Final Invention, James is trying to make a point that there needs to be a larger discussion about the potential risks as well as the benefits around AI. And that's something that he's trying to encourage. I think it's fair to say, and I certainly feel this way, I would not consider myself an alarmist. And I think that James would certainly acknowledge, I know he would, we talked about a bit, that there are many benefits to AI, and I certainly see that as well. But it makes sense to me that it seems pretty hard to deny that there are potential risks, and I really can't see the downside to having a wider discussion from a more engaged citizenry on an issue that's clearly of interest to the body politic. And a discussion that involves not only experts in the field of AI, but people from intelligent, you know, engaged people from a wide array of sectors. James and I talk about some of the perhaps groupthink or certain cognitive biases that might obscure people who work within the space of AI from seeing some of these potential pitfalls. Though James also notes that there are some very knowledgeable people in the field, including some leaders in the field who are also concerned. I hope this conversation sparks your interest to learn more about artificial intelligence. And if it interests you, I would strongly recommend that you read James's book, Our Final Invention, Artificial Intelligence in the End of the Human Era. So with that, I give you my conversation with James Barrett. Let's start out, and I've, I've told our guests in our introduction a little bit about your book, Our Final Invention, Artificial Intelligence in the End of the Human Era. 
But let's just begin with you telling our audience a bit about your background and how you became interested in the topic of artificial intelligence. Okay. For about 25 years, I've been a documentary filmmaker. And uh, what documentary filmmakers often do is take complex subjects, scientific or historical, and try to make them uh, understandable for a lay audience. And uh, I made a film in around, around the year 2000 about artificial intelligence. It was actually about the book and movie collaboration between Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick that came out with 2001, A Space Odyssey. And I got to interview a lot of uh, AI makers then. I interviewed um, Rodney Brooks, who was a roboticist and, and fiddling with AI at the time. Ray Kurzweil, who's a, now uh, one of the chief engineers at Google and a, an inventor and just a, a all-around um, brilliant, brilliant thinker. And both of those guys were really optimistic about the time ahead when we're, we'll share the planet with smarter-than-human machines. And that was really what my questions were all based around. And then I talked to Arthur C. Clarke, and Clarke had been a, a scientist and a mathematician, a physicist and a mathematician before he became a science fiction writer and legend. And he wasn't optimistic. He said uh, something like, we humans steer the planet not because we're the fastest or the strongest creature, but because we're the most intelligent. And where we, when we share the planet with something more intelligent than we are, it will steer the future. And until then, I'd been pretty besotted with AI and its promise. And uh, that, that, made, that made me think and take a step back. And then I began uh, gradually looking at the other side, looking, chatting with AI makers and looking at some of the risks and not just the rewards of artificial intelligence. What along the way, I should say, you know, after that kind of initial conversation, I'm thinking of some of the conferences that you started to go to that you talk about in the book. What were some of the sort of increasing things you began to encounter that disturbed you? Well, I, I, in the book, I call in the book, Our Final Invention, I call it the two minute problem where I'd be at a conference about about artificial general intelligence or about just some aspect of AI. Um, and there'd be this what I call the two minute problem. Someone would give a really nice presentation, a, a survey, an overview, and in the last two minutes they'd say, oh, and by the way, we really don't know how to control anything more intelligent than we are. And everyone would laugh and you know, they'd say, oh, this is so, that's so far off and that's such a fanciful idea when we're still trying to uh, get a grip on basic things like, like uh, natural language processing and, and uh, you know, navigation and things like that. So... But but it kept coming up. And then I started asking um, AI makers this question. I said, in 100 years, do you think most of the critical decisions about our lives will be made by humans or by machines? And almost, I would say almost everyone, if not everyone, said that they'll be made by machines. And then I said, the follow-up question was, well, it, will that be a, a gradual handover of our, uh, you know, a willing handover of our volition to machines, or will it be a takeover? And, and they didn't have an answer, an easy answer for that. Um, they, because there's a problem with, uh, that, that Werner Vinge, the science fiction writer, um, identified when he first coined the term singularity. He said there's a problem. Once you introduce smarter-than-human machines into the, into the technosphere, into, the, into our technology, we don't really know what's going to happen next. So Vinge called it singularity because that's the place in the orbit of a black hole where you can no longer see light, where the light's being sucked in by the black hole and you don't, you know, you don't know what's ahead. Um, 
Kurzweil rebranded that term singularity into this period of utopia, which I've, I, I talk about in the book. I find it, you know, deeply ironic that it would turn from being this, uh, this very clear statement of, um, the, the, you know, what we, how much we won't know when we share the planet with smarter than human machines into a, a statement about utopia and, uh, and living forever and all the other promises of AI. I want to bookmark those ideas you raised because you've, you've said a couple of things I definitely want to dive into deeper in terms of sing singularity, how Kurzweil built on that and how this takeover happens. But I really just want to lay some context for people starting with, can we go back to the beginning of this whole notion of replicating human intelligence in a machine and starting to think about, you know, what is intelligence? What would that begin to look like in a machine? And uh, sort of going back to Alan Turing and, and laying that context for people who are totally new to this discussion. Alan Turing, who's really the, fa the father, one of the one of two or three fathers of modern com of computer computer science, laid out a, uh, a, a kind of a, a enchanting and uh, uh, beguiling puzzle. 50, 60 years ago when he, when he talked about something that's now been called the Turing test, that someday we'll, we'll have machines that are as smart as humans. And how will we know and how will we, how will we call them intelligent? What, what, what's, the, what's, our, what's, the, what's our ground truthing? How, what's our baseline for intelligence? And he said it's when, uh, when the machine can be interviewed by a, by a human on a teletype and a, th a third party, a judge, can't tell the difference between uh, the human and the, and the machine. Can't tell who's, um, they, they can have a conversation, not really an interview. And the judge can't tell who's, who's, who's different. Right now, uh, to jump ahead, um, right now there's a big, uh, there's, a, there's a race for human level intelligence in machine. There's an intelligence race going on between all the major players we think about when we think about AI, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Baidu in China, um, IBM, and the stakes are extremely high. They and they've said in 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 no uncertain terms, uh, many of them that these are this is what we're after. We're after human level intelligence in a machine. We want to we want a machine that's generally intelligent, as a human is. Uh, one definition of intelligence I like, and so you, so that begs the question: what what is intelligence? What what is our intelligence? And um, the definition I like was was derived by Shane Leck, who's one of the co-founders of, of DeepMind. And it's, uh, intelligence is the ability to achieve goals in a variety of novel environments and to learn. And there's, you know, I can unpack all the things that are in there. It's a pretty, it's a, it's a simple, elegant definition, but there's a lot, there's a lot in there. Please unpack it. Okay. So intelligence has to be goal oriented. It has to have it has to be able to do something, whether it's theorem proving or, as we said, navigation or recognizing objects or uh, parsing language or identifying cancer cells in an X-ray. It has to it has to be goal oriented. It has to do something. If it doesn't do anything that's measurable and quantifiable, it's probably not very high level intelligence. Um, that definition says intelligence has to be. Uh, to work in a variety of novel environments, and a variety, and so that means a variety of spheres. Like it, it can't just be, uh, it can't just defeat the game Go, and that's it. That's why AlphaGo and AlphaGo's uh, progeny are are not really intelligent. They're narrowly intelligent, 
and they're very they're very good at what they do, but they're not intelligent in a in a in the sense that we will judge intelligence. Um, they have to. It has to work in a variety of different. It has to not just solve Go, but do navigation, and not just do that, but drive a car, and begin to emulate the general intelligence and the the um, that we have, that we humans have. So, and the final a final part of that definition is learning, and learning may be the most important part. All animals, except for us, are pretty much are born with all the capabilities they'll they'll ever have. Um, not us. We can. We can learn new languages. We can learn new crafts, new skills. We can, you know, write snarky comments on Facebook. We can, uh, we can, we can adapt and and do a variety of, of of learning tasks. And so far, until recently, we haven't made giant headway in uh, high level machine learning. So, bringing all that together, it's a general intelligence that achieves goals in a variety of novel environments, and it and it learns. Okay. And so what is the current state? You said until recently we hadn't made headways. I mean, in terms of relatively new technology, where are we in relation to these goals in terms of being self-aware and being able to iterate on its own code or solve complex problems? We're still quite far away from that. Um, we have really, really impressive machines that do uh, some, some generally intelligent things. You know, IBM's Watson was quite impressive. And it brought a lot of um, a lot of uh, computing power and a lot of different techniques uh, to to the game of Jeopardy. Watson, for your audience, is the the computer from IBM that defeated the Jeopardy champions in 2011. And Jeopardy is a complex game. It requires knowledge of language, sports, movies, a huge lexicon of uh, of, of knowledge, a huge encyclopedia of knowledge. I think it it, it had on tap um, the entire contents of Wikipedia, but it brought to and it, but the, and it but also it was doing uh, um, statistical probability to judge possible answers and 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 rank them and make the right choice all within seconds. So it was very very impressive. Uh, the second, I think, the second most impressive cognitive architecture, which is a, just a fancy word for saying you know algorithm or set of algorithms, and and you know, in a hardware array is probably AlphaGo. And that's the, the, the uh, software that defeated um, the, the Go champions. Go is a really, really complex game. You can't uh, become a master by simply by, by having a giant um, catalog of, of previously played games. Um, it's, it's millions of times more complex than chess. Chess, was, you can beat by, by, by looking at the last 700,000 uh, games played at, at, a, at a high level. Go isn't like that. And then, Go, then they did it again with another program. They, they didn't just beat Go, but they had a program that learned Go and then uh, challenged itself in this iterative process of um, playing games against itself. And it played millions of games. And within a couple of days, it reached the status of, of Grandmaster. So that's where we are. That's and th but th that's not general intelligence. That's not human level intelligence. Okay. Yeah, and I guess clarify those terms. Can you explain for people briefly um, what is AGI versus super intelligence? And then before we go totally down that route, I I'd love for you to talk about what are some of the common ways that people are beginning to come at this problem. 
because that's far from obvious how we replicate intelligence in a machine. And you talk about a few of the popular ways in your book that people are trying to solve this. Well, very broadly speaking, um, there's there's top down and and bottom up systems. Uh, bottom up means people are looking at the brain in a in a very high resolution way. For example, I, I went up to the Dartmouth Brain Lab and talked with Rick Granger, and they're looking at clusters of neurons and trying to represent those clusters in, with algorithms or sets of instructions, and and then and then looking for uh, patterns in in the brain and how the brain is structured. They're finding a lot of redundancy. They're finding a lot of um, a lot of uh, similarity in different parts of the brain, and what and so basically they, they represent represent clusters of neurons and algorithms or, and set, or sets of instructions and then turn that into, uh, to, you can turn that algorithm then into a, a hardwired chip. The idea behind that is if someone damages part of their brain, you could replace it with a chip that does, all, that does those things. And that's a bottom-up approach. And there's, there's several big projects around the world uh, working on that. There's, uh, the biggest one, I believe, is called uh, Deep Blue in Switzerland. They got, I think, 2 billion euros from the uh, from the European Economic Union um, to pursue that. The other way, the other way is, to, and so so the other way is top down, and that's by observing intelligence and then trying to make clever programming to do to do those things. So you may not look at the eye to uh, to teach a computer to recognize objects. Um, you may not look too much at how we use language to teach a computer. To uh, to understand and and uh, to, you know in, in natural language processing, although it may it, it may help, most of what's happening right now seems to me to be a combination of of, of top down and bottom up. Artificial neural nets are what's uh, powering AlphaGo, and just the name alone, they're 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 artificial neural nets. They're based very roughly on on the neurons in our brain, uh, but they're also they're also using a lot of a lot of uh, more traditional programming techniques like reinforcement learning. Um, so AlphaGo is a combination of, artifi of, of artificial neural nets and deep learning, which are very deep artificial neural nets or many layered artificial neural nets combined with something that's been around for a while and that's reinforcement learning. So, so, no one, so to, to reiterate, everybody is, go is, is going after this prize. No one's all that close yet. But we, we, we live in, as Kurzweil never tires of saying, we, we live in exponential times. And things that uh, we thought, we, you know, people thought it would take 30 years to uh, defeat Go, uh, or to, to defeat the grandmasters of Go. And it's just, we've just accomplished that. And in terms of the players who are really involved in this field, you mentioned a few of them who who were basically, you know, the corporations is one group, but another major group of people you talk about in the book who are more likely many people think to develop AGI first are military, um, basically like DARPA and things like that. So could you talk a little bit about that organization? Sure, sure. Well, you know, it's it's become, uh, DARPA is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, and many, many, many people who work in AI, especially five years ago before this giant investment started, pre-2009, I would say, you know, just, just off the top of my head, I'd say more than 50% of the people working in AI were working on DARPA contracts or partly working on DARPA contracts or their, their funding for their labs was partly 
Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency money. And they weren't all making bombs, but they were making components for things that could be, could be weaponized. But DARPA does a lot of research that's not directly applicable to the battlefield. Uh, what wor- what's more worrying to me is, the, is N- the NSA, the National Security Agency. And they have a track record of abusing our rights, um, specifically our, 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 the uh, Second Amendment prohibition against seizing property. They've been looking at your phone book and mine for a long time, and they've been doing it illegally. It used to be that in this country that you needed a, a warrant from, from a court that said, uh, you know, we have probable cause to think a crime is being committed, therefore we need to seize uh, Adrian's phone book and communications. Uh, that doesn't happen anymore. The, the NSA has totally bridged that. They have a $50 billion a year black budget. We don't know, the, the, the black part means we don't know what, what's in it. Um, and, and it's supposed to be looked, looked after by, by Congress, but I have zero faith in Congress's uh, techno, you know, technological uh, chops. So I, I, I can't imagine that the technologists at the NSA are having any trouble uh, blowing smoke uh, over the, the heads of, the, uh, of Congress. So that's extremely worrisome to me. But, but you know, I used to think that it, was a, that it was an intelligence race among these corporations because, of course, obviously, this is propelled by a huge economic wind. I mean, if you look at, and we can go into the, all the different, you know, look at digital assistance, the, the, the money behind that, Siri, Alexa, um, driverless cars, uh, search, um, you know, affinity analysis and predictive technology and Amazon and Netflix and things like that. Look at the markets for, in, for health. This, this is a giant, there's a giant intelligence race. Corporations are spending a lot of money. Uh, it's doubled every year since 2009. But I'm I'm concerned about China. China said it's it's their goal to dominate AI by by 2030. And then in a corollary, uh, Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, said whoever controls AI controls the world. And I, I think he's absolutely right. Whoever wins the AI race uh, to to superhuman intelligence um, gets all the chips. So it's two of the biggest motives out there, basically the profit motive. And, you know, national security, yeah. greed and fear. So the, the two classic American or two classic human drives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just like it's it's um, it's like any other cool tool. Uh, you know, it, it's following. I, I bring this up again and again in my talks. It's following the path of nuclear fission to a, an alarming extent. Um, in, the, in the 1920s and 30s, we thought of uh, nuclear fission, which is the power behind nuclear bombs and uh, nuclear power plants. We thought fission was a, a way to split the atom and get free energy, and this period of utopia would follow, free energy. It was practically a, you know, a, a singularity-like concept. But instead, we weaponized it, and uh, we, we, we blew up, uh, we incinerated two cities, and then we pointed a gun at our own heads as, as a species for the next 50 years. We're having, we're having a, a, a suicide duel with North Korea right now, this technology. There was no maintenance plan for fission. There's no maintenance plan for AI. It's following, we're already weaponizing it. It's already, uh, it's already um, being developed without proper safeguards. It's already being used to violate, to violate uh, our rights. I should go back to that NSA example. The only reason they're able to, 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 to uh, get your phone book and mine is because they have very advanced data mining software so they could make sense and extract intelligence from this vast ocean of data they were they were seizing. 
Wow. Yeah. It's, and I, I mean, you mentioned other examples of, uh, was it Google or Facebook as well? Um, or no, you, you gave some example where people were going around, I think it was even locally in Silicon Valley and it was taking pictures, but it was also getting people's data from Wi-Fi pass, Wi-Fi password. Oh yeah. Well, that's why, that's why <laughs> Google's Google street view camera used to gobble up, um, local area network passwords and data. And it probably still does. They just got caught doing something nefarious. Uh, it, was, it was in the paper today. Um, Google would rather be sued than be ethical. They'd rather do something unethical and be sued about it than just be ethical all the time. And that's, and that, but, and that's sort of the nature of corporations. You know, that not every uh, part of a corporation knows what every other part is doing. But I don't trust them with my with my data, and and they've shown again and again they've been sued overseas so many times. It's it's incredible, for for uh, for violating people's people's data rights. Oh, the the thing that just came up was that um, their their phone, despite all their their protestations to the contrary, I can't remember the name of the Google phone, the Android, tracks your position even when you tell it not to. And even when you take the SIM card out. How does it do so, it when you take the SIM card out? <laughs> I don't know. It's a, it triangulates on, 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 the, on, the, on the relay towers somehow. I don't know. Wow. It's, but it's, read about it. It's, it's, it was in today's, uh, today's paper. And it was like, and Google's going to say, oh, gosh, we didn't know it could do that. Just like they, they said, oh, gee, we're sorry about the, the, the Street View uh, camera car that's gobbling up all your data. Um, they, you know, they, they know the, 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 uh, the currency of tomorrow is data and they're, they're, they're acquiring it whatever way they can. Well, there's a parallel, you know, between these two driving forces. You're talking about the profit motive and for corporations and national security for governments. And they're really both a sort of arms race, right? You know, yeah, quite literally yeah. in terms of nation states, but in terms of corporations, it's an arms race in order to get a competitive advantage in their field and to maximize profit. And that's what mm -hmm. corporations do, right? They have yeah. a fiduciary responsibility to maximize profit and anything that gets in the way of that, I mean, could literally make a CEO liable to being thrown out by his board. Yes. Which, which apparently, which, yeah, exactly. But somehow we have to insert ethics between, uh, between the, the, the profit motive and, 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 and AI. Because it's if if we develop it without without you know a great deal of care, it's just going to be disastrous. Uh, and yeah, and, and so and so, I mean, the situation gets worse. It's not just like nuclear fission; it's more sensitive than nuclear fission. Uh, it's the invention that that invents uh, weapons. Stephen Hawking said, you know, among the things superintelligence will will be able to do is outsmart our smartest politicians which is actually a pretty low bar but it will be able to invent it'll, it'll be able to invent weapons we don't even understand and that and so the problem is this this incredibly powerful tool is being developed by by sort of functional psychopaths because corporations behave in, in psychopathic ways as you said, they're not they're not bound by by ethics or by conscience. They're bound by quarterly uh, returns. Right. So let's I definitely want to get to the importance of talking about how do we set up some kind of committee uh, to regulate or just to oversee and insert ethics into this discussion. Before we get there, let's talk a little bit about um, 
you know, sort of the road along the way. So briefly, what's the distinction between AGI and what's in ASI? And then what is this notion of the intelligence explosion and how that makes this whole notion of AI develop so dangerous? Yeah. And that's it, the intelligence explosion is a fascinating and very simple idea. Uh, and it was developed by I.J. Good, who was a, sta- a British statistician. He worked with uh, Alan, Alan Turing at Bletchley Park in England, um, breaking the Enigma codes. So to, for, for, for your audience members who don't know what all that was, during World War II, uh, the British set up a uh, a, a, dec- a, a, a a code-breaking factory called Bletchley Park. They developed some some fundamental computers. Um, Alan Turing, the one of the fathers of computer science, was was largely in charge of what was going on there. One of his co-workers was a statistician named I.J. Good, who was a who was a chess prodigy, and was he was recruited uh, because he, by by I believe his name was Ted Hughes, who was the reigning chess champion of England at the time. Not the poet Ted Hughes, but the chess champion Ted Hughes um, recruited I.J. Good. I.J. Good and Turing became friends. They played, funnily enough, they played the uh, I.J. Good, the chess ma- the chess master, taught Turing how to play chess better. Turing taught Good how to play Go until uh, Good could beat Turing at Go. And then an, an anecdotal story that'll, that'll take us away, take us to a little a lighter thought for a minute is Turing devised a game of chess because, you know, Turing was an Olympic class runner. He was a long distance runner. He devised a game of chess where you made a move and then you had to run around his garden. And if you got back before the other guy had made his move, you get two moves. So it, it favored, it favored athleticism. <laughs> um, good was not, good was a, a, a <laughs> Uh, he was a he was a statistic. He was a he was a kind of a genius as a statistician, and he developed this idea when he was when he was analyzing early neural nets. There was a there was a an a, a, a artificial neural net machine called the perceptron, developed by Roger Rosenblatt, I believe it was MIT, and uh, Good was asked to asked by IBM to evaluate it. And he came up with. Then he came. He came up from that, and it's ironic that now we're dealing with neural nets all the time. He came up from that with that from that the idea of an intelligence explosion. And he basically said, if we develop machines that are as smart, that smart as we are, they'll inevitably become smarter than we are, and they'll be able to do anything that we do with our brains better than we can. And that will include developing smart machines. So it will be the last invention mankind will ever need to make. It will solve all our problems. That's where I got the title of my book, Our Final Invention. Um, later, so I'll, to put that idea another way, we're, we're now creating machines that are better than us in a variety of narrow spheres. That, uh, I, won't, I won't go through, through them all, but now, now machines do object recognition better than us. They play all these games, any strategy game, better than us. Um, they'll, soon they'll do translation better and faster. They'll do all the, all the, the they, they, they do mathematics, they do, they do theorem proving all faster, eventually they'll do artificial intelligence research and development better than we do. Then the machines will set the pace of intelligence advancement and not us. And that's really the idea behind Good's intelligence explosion. But then at the end of his life, I, I, I made a, pil- a trip or a pilgrimage down to uh, Blacksburg, Virginia, where he was a teacher, professor. 
he was paid, he was a celebrity professor. He was paid more than the, than the university president. And um, I met a, there I met a, a, a long-term colleague and assistant of his who showed me a paper where he made his own notes saying, I used to think that um, computers will ultimately solve all of mankind's problems. Now I'm afraid they'll, they'll wipe us out. Uh, I'm, I'm concerned that we, that we will follow them like lemmings off a cliff and uh, the, the intelligence explosion will be our end. So he had a, he had a uh, late, late life change of heart. Right. So it's this whole idea that, you know, just to kind of briefly, you know, summarize what you said. So AGI, you know, general intelligence is human level intelligence, right? And then we've got super intelligence, which is above human level intelligence. And the whole issue is that even for those who say, well, what are you talking about? Look what we can, look what AI cannot do now. We're so far away. The potential issue is that, you know, there's such exponential growth in this field, as even proponents like Kurtzwill like to say, that when we get to the point, we quickly approach AGI, which may be much faster than we think because of how quickly it's growing. The point from AGI to ASI might happen in a snap of a finger, so to speak. And it could happen so quickly that we won't have time to respond to it. And this kind of frustrates the one popular um, refrain from some in the tech community is that, oh, it'll be gradual and we'll have time to figure it out. We'll figure it out when we get there. And this is the real kind of red flag, right? Is that we may well not. (laughs) <laughs> yes yes it's 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 well you know it's it's it, it's it is speculative we don't know when we'll get to to agi or artificial general intelligence um but we but and then for some reason you know ray kurzweil points to 2029 and he's been pretty good at 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 as a futurist at get at, at uh in a, in, in a very logical way if you read his books in a very logical way arguing for specific dates um, for uh, milestones to be made. He thinks by 2029, we'll have a uh, human-level intelligence in a, at, at the price of a computer. He also says by 2029, he, he's working on this now, he wants to make a machine that makes 300 trillion calculations per second and to share it with a billion, billion people online. And that's it. That's a, that's a superintelligence. That's, you know, I think, I think 300 trillion calculations per second is way beyond what anyone estimates our brain does, although our brain is, is, is pretty awesome. I'm not sure that's, it's that awesome, but it's already thinking about it as a, as a intelligence, as a commodity that can be, can be shared or, or monetized online. Um, then, then he thinks artificial superintelligence, ASI, won't come around until 2045. And I'm not sure what, what's happening during those 15 years. Uh, I, and I, I haven't. I, I should go back and look because I, I a, a lot more AI makers that I talk to believe in what's called a hard takeoff, and that's that's you get to human level intelligence in a machine, then you get slightly better, and then all the all the uh, all the calculators, all the all the people doing code, all the things doing code are computers, and they're doing it faster and better than we are, and they're developing um, they're developing better techniques and better hardware and they're getting uh they're setting the pace of of intelligence advancement so i don't know what's happening during those 15 years but i i think a hard takeoff is a lot more, is is much more plausible you know when we talk to people well 
I should have first ask for your sort of overview of this. You know, when you interview people from the tech community, what is, and you alluded to this a bit at the beginning, that people seem not too concerned about this. You know, I, I feel like one thing that I've heard from people when I've talked to people in the tech community is they'll say, well, you know, and and this is, in, you know, non-defensively for some people to say, you know, it it's interesting when I hear people talk about this issue, if you, if you notice that most of the alarmists, they tend to not be in the tech community. And if you ask the people who are actually closest and the most knowledgeable to the situation, they are not as concerned. And, you know, they, they begin to paint those who are critics as, you know, falling into the Terminator scenarios. And sort of why do you, why do you think this is and how do you respond to this criticism? Well, uh, Stuart Russell is is on the side of people who are who are quite concerned about AI risk. Stuart Russell wrote the uh, the standard text along with Peter Norvig for artificial intelligence. It's called AI, Artificial Intelligence: A Modern Approach. Um, you couldn't you couldn't be much more immersed in AI than 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 him, and he's definitely on the uh, let's be let's be cautiously cautious and concerned side. Um, I, I do run into that a lot, but the, my, 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 they, they say, but what they typically say is, it's not that we won't get to human level intelligence in a machine; it's that it's probably a hundred years away. So why worry? So two answers to that. Stephen, Stephen Hawking said, if we knew that in thirty years uh, a, a, a extremely powerful alien force was going to come visit us, would we just go on with our lives? Or come visit us in, in thirty years. Would we just go on and go on with our lives, or would we start maybe noodling around with how to prepare for it? Gary Marcus, uh, who's a AI maker, and uh, uh, he, he teaches at NYU. He's a he's a, a, a psychologist, and a, and uh, he just sold he, he just sold a, a comp, an AI company. Reviewed my book for the New Yorker, and he said. Um, you know, does it, it does it really matter if it comes in fifty years or a hundred years? What matters? It doesn't really matter. What matters is what happens right after that. Are, will we be prepared? Will it be a handover or a takeover? Um, so, what my question for guys who or guys and gals who say, you know, the people close to it are, aren't worried. Well, two things. One, they have they have a, they have a giant bias about not being worried because they're being paid to not raise the alarm about about AI and their their bosses would be very upset with them if they started standing on street corners and and, and saying the end is near um, and two do they think that do, do they think super intelligence will never come because that would really put them in the minority and then if super you know if given that super intelligence will come someday that will that it will be created or or given enough tools it will create itself is there nothing to worry about is it going to be like just you know as 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 un, uh, you know unharmful as a, as a dishwasher? Is it going to be is it going to be benign? And so and then if it you know so let's say let's all bet that it's going to be benign. So what what they're asking us in essence to do is bet our lives and, and the existence of our planet and and the and the future of our planet on the idea that a super that super intelligence will be harmless. I think the first point, they're both great points. I think the first one that you made deserves a little elaboration because, you know, I think it's very important for, you know, if you look at any field, right, 
obviously someone who tends to dedicate themselves to that particular field, whatever the arena is, you know, they, they deserve a, a certain amount of deference. They have a certain amount of expertise. Yet at the same time, that can create blinders, right? There is a reason, for example, that companies hire consultants like BCG or McKinsey. I mean, why is it that people can come in from the outside and add value? It's precisely because of their distance, right, from a certain situation and bringing a set of fresh perspective to a problem that they're able to add value. Because when we're immersed in something, we start to mimic the language of people around us. We get stuck in a sort of tunnel vision. And so I think that's one important point to be made. Yeah, there's there's a there's a cognitive bias called the confirmation bias, and if you're standing if you're standing around with a group of people all saying yes, then you're gonna when you leave the room you'll also, you'll you'll say yes for quite a while. Um, if you're standing around a bunch of guys who are who are looking at DARPA contracts, and looking at uh, how to get tenure, and looking at um, their next their next advancement in, in the company, and looking at their at their at their share prices going up, then they are not going to be objective critics of the technology that they're selling. Right. It's the, it's the marriage of the confirmation bias with financial incentives. There's a, it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes, which is from Upton Sinclair about politics. He said, it's difficult to get a man to understand something if his living depends upon him not understanding it. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. You know, and, and it's not, and it's not, it's not like AI creators are, I'd say this, you know, I, I, it's not like the people, it's not like AI creators are evil, and it's not like people like me who are ringing this, you know, very tiny bell are, are AI haters. I find AI fa- absolutely fascinating. I couldn't, I couldn't have, you know, dived into the, the, um, our final invention if I didn't find it absolutely fascinating. In, in many ways, it's, 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 a very, it's a profound science. Um, it looks more closely at, at who we are than any any previous science. We, it involves psychology and logic and perception and uh, how do you turn a concept into a, into a, a percept? Uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a deep deep look at how we how we think and what our what our superpower is, which is intelligence. So you know, it's a fascinating fascinating technology. But but like any like any really really powerful technology, from fission to fire, it's got to be it's got to be used responsibly and uh and that that doesn't mean secreting yourself away and working in your lab without uh without oversight right and sort of this gets you know i think the larger point that you're trying to make and i've heard you know reading your book educated me about this i've heard sam harris talk quite a bit about this and i think the point that both of you are basically making with which i strongly agree is you know Look, on just a really basic level, what we're trying to say is this needs to be part of a larger civic discussion, the way that any other issue does, which affects the entire body politic. And what could be the harm of bringing this out and talking about it in a more public way? And maybe you can talk a little bit about why you think, what are some of the hurdles to doing that, and then how we can go about having a more broad, civically informed conversation about this issue. That's a, that's a, so, so one of the reasons I wrote our final invention was because at the time, now, now several good books have come out uh, addressing what's, you know, broadly called the control issue that, that super, the intelligence might get out of our control. Um, But when I wrote it, I wrote it in, 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 I tried to write it in layman's terms because I think the first step in in just, and make it, um, I purposely 
was looking at, as a documentary filmmaker, you may not know this, but most documentary films are written about a 10th grade level, 10th grade reading level. And that's a good solid 10th grade you know, reading level. The New Yorker magazine is written generally at a 9th grade reading level. Um, the New York Times, I think, is written at a 12th grade reading level, which is probably the highest of a, of a popular publication. I wanted to write at a 10th or a 9th grade reading level because I didn't want anyone to miss out. And, and uh, I think it was Einstein who said, if you can't explain your science well, you don't know it well enough. And so I, I was really striving to make it plain, make, make some of these concepts plainly understood. To me, that's the first step. Um, people have to understand what it is we're talking about when we talk about AI, or what, what it is we're talking about when we talk about that AI is a dual-use technology, that it's capable of good and harm. Um, because it's going to affect everybody. So I think the first step is to, is to try to make it more understandable, to try to get people involved in the conversation. Uh, there are, there's, I, I've been stunned. I was looking up, somebody put together a list of the advocacy groups that are springing up about AI risk and AI ethics. And I won't even begin to uh, try to name them all, but when I, when I was writing this book, there was only MIRI, the Machine Intelligence Research Institute, uh, sorry, there was also the F Future of Humanity Institute with with Bostrom at Oxford, um, and I think that was pretty much it. Then now there's probably twenty, including the Future of Life Institute and and lots of other institutes that are that are approaching it from you know in, in smart ways. Uh, they're trying to get as Future of Life Institute particularly is trying to get AI makers together with uh, with ethicists with with concerned people. The Tesla creator, I've just lost his name for a second. Elon Musk has created a company called OpenAI to uh, try to, to get the best talent and, and, and develop it in an, open, in an open way so that people can share the technology, but also so that people can look over the shoulder of these technologists. He has said that he invests in AI not because he's, he really uh, needs it, although obviously all his, tech, all, the, all, the, all his industries do need it. Um, but because he wants to watch and mind the safety of the technology. So what's happening is, is interesting. Uh, there's, the, but the, there's a group, and I wish I, I wish I knew their name. They just came out, and they're, they're approaching it from a way I think is probably the most sensible, and that's we have to look at corporations. We have to look at corporations, how they're governed, who's in charge. When I was, try, when I was writing Our Final Invention... <coughs> I talked to programmers at Google who really didn't want to talk to me, and I talked to um, their uh, public affairs people, and they all, they all had different stories, and, and none of them were actually true. I asked, I asked about a, a project to create uh, human-level intelligence in a machine, and I was told many times, oh, no, 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 That's, there's nothing like that going on here. And then Project, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, I think it was called Project X came out, and it was like, they, they had like 10, moon, 10, 10 wild ideas they were really pursuing. And number one on the list was human-level intelligence in a machine. So, uh, so corporations, I think, you know, I think what we have to do is, is, um, is make them develop this technology in, a, in an open way. And it's, this will be really tough because uh, they won't want to show their, their insights to, to other companies, and especially other governments. And the, the real trick is going to be, how do you get the Chinese to show us what they're, they're making? How do you get the Russians to show us what they're making? How do you get Israel to show us their stuff? Uh, but I think that's, that's, what, that's what has to happen. Um, corporations are incapable of governing themselves. 
they're just incapable. They're not designed that way. Um, we can't let them uh, develop artificial intelligence without safeguards. They have certainly demonstrated that time and again, whether it's Wall Street. Oh yeah, you, yeah, what, yeah, exactly. Whether it's Wall Street or ex exploding Pintos or 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 Bhopal. Yeah, look at Bhopal. You know, it, the the corporate way is to is to suffer some huge financial and public relations disaster and then change your ways. With with as many people have said, with artificial intelligence, it, we may not get a second chance to get it right. So what would you like to see in terms of uh, government oversight, for example, some beginning with some kind of a commission? And who do you imagine some of, you know, stand out either individuals or just what sectors of society really need to be drawn upon to be part of that discussion? That's a really good question. Here's where my 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 own organic intelligence drops off precipitously because I don't know. Um, I my last solution for anything involves the government, uh, but we do have an IAEA. That's the International Atomic uh, Energy Association, I believe. They go around looking at nuclear power plants and at nuclear weapons developments to make sure that they're safe and all the uranium is accounted for. Um, I think we need something like that run by the government. And uh, with with open access to all the all the all the uh, corporate factories, um, I think that's the only way to do it. Unfortunately, uh, so that's 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 my that's my kind of pat answer. I don't know who who, you know, it's, uh, putting politicians in charge of this just gives me the heebie-jeebies. Um, I'm not sure how to I'm not sure how to get the right committee together to go, to to monitor this stuff. Yeah, it's a tough call between corporations and politicians. I mean, those are, you know, two not very desirable options, you know, <laughs> but something has to be done. Well, ex exactly. But you need, you, you, uh, you, but you need a mix of scientists and eth ethicists. Uh, you know, there's that you need, uh, you need a, a mixture of people from different backgrounds. You, you, you need some journalists, um, you know, you need some podcast hosts and, and authors. <laughs> right. No, truly. People, once again, many people from outside of the field. Yeah. 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 It, it's going to take, it's going to take some, uh, some smart people to put the, put, put groups like that together. But I, I think, I think, you know, I think there's a desire to play nice with the corporations, uh, and not tr to try not to alienate them. And, and, and I'm not ad advising that we alienate them. But I, I don't think we should treat them as if they have uh, everyone's best interests at heart. I don't think they do. No, they have their shareholders' interests at yeah. heart, which is their job. Yeah. Well, it's you know? it's their job, except except you know this is like if you if you said if you said to someone in you know after the after the uh, bomb went off at, at, at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, if you said, well, you know now. Union Carbide and, and, and all the other chemical companies are going to get involved in making nuclear weapons. Is that okay? You know, all the, all the big corporations. How about, you know, Ford's going to set up its own nuclear uh, weapons plant and, um, you know, U.S. Steel is going to set up its own nuclear weapons plant and they're going to just do their thing and they don't want to be hindered by, by the government. Well, that would be an insane idea, but that's exactly what we're talking about. Right, and that's for all the problems with you know, governments, at least by design, they are at least as their intention supposed to have the public interests at heart, whereas corporations, I mean, that is avowedly just not their intention. 
That's right. That's right. And and there's some alarming statistic that I read the other day. Something that like you know one in five CEOs displays uh, psychopathic tendencies. <laughs> Zero surprise. And I know there's been a lot of studies with politicians. Same thing. They're on that spectrum. Yeah. Zero surprise. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and look at our and look at our look at our president. I mean, <clears throat> I don't think he's on the spectrum. I think he created the spectrum. Uh, yeah. 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 He's, he's got he just checks all the boxes. He's he's certifiable and, and he's carrying around the nuclear codes. So here's my here's a point we can draw from that is that somebody said to me once, you know, um, the human race is really excellent at first doing innovation and then following up with stewardship. So we innovate and then, then we make a mess and then we, then we follow up with, you know, hand-wringing and stewardship. But in this case, we have to be wise enough. So, so the question is, are we wise enough to let innovation and, and stewardship go hand in hand? Um, and and this may be this it, the answer may be no, if this may be our this may be our function because I don't you know I don't see the wisdom, especially given the last the last election, I don't see the wisdom and and, and our relationship look at our relationship with guns, another incredibly sensitive technology. Um, I don't see the wisdom coming out of uh, of our our, our leaders uh, to to get this right. I really don't right now. No, I think what we are really in need of on multiple levels, AI guns and any number of other issues that the last election and beyond has woken us up to is the need for a total revival in democracy and engagement. And I don't know if it's possible, but I think we absolutely have to try because I think the consequences are really not, I mean, can't even contemplate them. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you, James. That's probably a good place to end. I want to thank you on that note for doing your part to facilitate a discussion on what I think is truly a very, very important issue. And I want to give you a chance to let our listeners know about where they can find your book, as well as any other works you have coming up or speaking engagements, anything else. Well, I'm speaking, I, I do, I do, uh, quite a bit of speaking. I'm speaking at a university in a few days, but by the time this podcast comes out, that'll be over. But you can look for, look for my uh, engagements on my, on, at jamesbarrett.com, B-A-R-R-A-T. Uh, you can buy Our Final Invention anywhere. It's now, I think, in eight languages. Um, and I want to I wanna thank you, Adrian, for having me on the show. Very good, very good conversation. Thank you so much, James. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for your time. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I have no doubt that our listeners will as well. Great. Well, okay. I hope, to talk, I hope to talk to you again. Absolutely. Take care, James. All right. Bye-bye. Your continued support makes future episodes possible. You can help by heading over to patreon.com slash hacking consciousness.